Hi everyone and welcome back to the In Our Backyard podcast with your host Jen Galler. And in this episode, I talk with Jay Feldman, who's the executive director of Beyond Pesticides. Beyond Pesticides are science and research-based. They seek to protect healthy air, water, land, and food for ourselves and future generations. By forging ties with government, nonprofit, and people who rely on these natural resources, they reduce the need for unnecessary pesticide use and protect public health and the environment. They believe that people must have a voice in decisions that affect them directly, and that decisions should not be made for us by chemical companies or decision makers who either do not have all the facts or refuse to consider them. With Jay, we discuss what pesticides are, common places they're found, effects they give to humans, research they've done and are continually doing, alternatives, and how it is all interconnected. Jay has a wealth of knowledge, so to contact and connect with him will be in the show notes below. And this episode will be broken into two episodes since it's longer, so be on the lookout for it in two weeks. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi everyone, I'm with Jay Feldman, who is the executive director of Beyond Pesticides. And just getting started, what are some of the most common pesticides and where are some of the common places they're used? Well, it's it's amazing how much uh, pesticides intersect with our lives. Obviously, we all eat food, and typically food is grown with chemical inputs, pesticides being among the chemical inputs, and they're petroleum-based materials that are, by their very nature, hazardous materials. No one denies that. The question is whether they can be used in a manner that results in an acceptable level of harm. Uh, No pesticide is deemed safe per se, it's all a question of whether the regulators, typically the, you know, in terms of the federal regulators, it's the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and down at the state level, it's usually the departments of agriculture, with the exception of about a half a dozen states, which give the authority over pesticides to their environmental agency or natural resources agency. But the question really that we face is whether what the EPA calls mitigation measures, you know, restrictions on how these toxic chemicals are used, are acceptable, are acceptable in terms of what the agency calculates as an acceptable risk. And therein lies the huge dilemma. Do we have adequate information to make determinations on safety in terms of the range of population that are affected by pesticides. So, you know, we have different vulnerabilities across our population. We have children which have elevated risk factors just because of their developing organ systems and their size and the intake of food and chemical relative to their body weight. And then we have people that have pre-existing conditions, may have a respiratory disease. They may have a neurological reproductive question. This came up in COVID, right? Where we realized that there were parts of the population and we were told there were parts of the population who were exposed as a result of that exposure given their pre-existing condition or given their rates of exposure, essential workers had higher rates of exposure. Elderly had more weakened immune system. 
you know, people that have some sort of debilitating disease, they could be, you know, a cancer patient, they are all in elevated states of vulnerability as a result of pesticide use. So we're talking about food, but we're also talking about chemicals that we come into contact with in our daily lives used in parks, schoolyards, along rights of way. And so these are the non-agricultural pesticides with non-dietary exposures that, again, cause a an impact depending on our backgrounds and our previous exposure patterns, where we work, where we live. Do we live in a fence line community next to a production facility? Are we a farm worker, a farmer, a gardener? You know, what are our exposures? And those exposures determine vulnerability over time. Now, when we're talking about pesticides, you know, we're talking about what they call acute effects, sort of the immediate effects could be a rash, it could be a headache, it could be nausea. And we recognize that pretty quickly. We may not associate it with pesticide exposure. You know, we go down to the park, come back, we have a rash, we wonder, why? Why do I have that rash? And then we have what is called chronic effects, long-term effects. And these are the ones that are really hard to pinpoint as related to a toxic chemical exposure, right? Because we're exposed and the symptom and the effect doesn't show up until later years. This is true with what are called endocrine disruptors. These are chemicals that affect the endocrine system in our body, which is the message system for all our organ systems. And these exposures then during critical windows of vulnerability, meaning as we're developing in the fetal stage and the you know, the early childhood stage, teenage stage, where there are elevated points of vulnerability, exposure to these endocrine disruptors can and do have an effect later in life. And they can affect all, all organ systems as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And how would you define a pesticide and what made them able to use these in like common places where the public is and, you know, foods? Yeah. Well, a, a pesticide, you know, depending on the position you're in and whether you're a regulator, or a user, or you're an environmental advocate, you know, has different definitions. You know, we would start mm -hmm. out saying pesticides are poisons. They're poisons that are intended to be used to manage or control pests. Pests are defined as unwanted organisms. It could be an insect, a plant, a fungal disease, uh, you know, a rodent. So anything that we define as something unwanted, some unwanted organism can fall under this category of pests. And then these materials, these toxic materials were introduced to control those pest populations. And this is true whether it's a pest, again, it could be a weed uh, or it could be an insect in agriculture. Controlling that pest becomes a target for the farmer who believes that unless they use this toxic chemical, they will stifle the productivity of their crop or they may lose their crop unless they have the intervention of this toxic chemical. And same for parks, 
directors, parks, departments where they've been taught that the only way to control a weed or an insect or a fungal disease in turf and landscapes is with these toxic materials that target these pest populations. For us, the question really is, as environmental advocates, public health advocates, do we really need these chemicals to manage pests, to protect the productivity of crop production, and to protect the aesthetic of a landscape, or to protect against an unwanted rodent, or the transmission even through mosquitoes of an insect-borne disease. So that is, are these toxic chemicals necessary to achieve the pest management goals that we're seeking? Yeah. So you kind of talk, you, you said a little bit about it before you could get like rashes or, you know, have more long-term effects, but what are some of the effects that can be seen from exposure to pesticides? You know, I've talked about the acute effects, the short-term effects, and then we have, and those are really one of the most common effects is impacts on rest the respiratory system. So it can elevate respiratory diseases, asthma, or other conditions. So that would would be, you know, in this category of a short-term reaction to chemical. And, the, and we, we, we identify these as poisoning events because you're, you're taking a toxic material and affecting a physiological function, and that causes a symptom that may also be associated with other inputs or other factors, right? So one of the complexities here that we're dealing with is that we have people in the population that we would consider normal, meaning they're not, they're healthy, average body weight, they are, don't exhibit any symptoms of illness, and we can talk about exposure to chemicals causing an adverse effect to those people. But then we have portions of the population that are in some state of convalescence, they may be suffering from an illness. And in that context, the exposure to the toxic chemical elevates a condition, which we may call a pre-existing condition. So it exacerbates uh, those, those symptoms. And we may notice that immediately, but you know, even more troubling than these are these are troubling things, and the acute effects are nothing to dismiss. Pesticide exposure can result in death. There's no question about that. But when we're talking about chronic or long-term effects, we're talking about a range of effects that have become commonplace in our society. Cancer touches almost every family in the United States. Reproductive diseases. You know, we're seeing reproductive problems, birth defects in our society, no question about that. We're seeing reduction in sperm counts and issues around conception and problems in that respect when it comes to reproductive health. You know, we're all, we also see, uh, in terms of long-term effects, we see conditions that are associated with functions of different organ systems. So we see kidney effects, liver effects, 
you know, and these are all effects that we may may not manifest itself or themselves immediately, but do over the long term. So, you know, we depend on both the regulatory system, meaning the U.S. Environment Agency in this case, which is responsible for determining which chemicals to allow on the market, what label restrictions to put on a product that it registers, and all the data that is used to make those decisions comes directly from the chemical manufacturers. EPA mm -hmm. establishes a protocol for testing. Manufacturers are supposed to carry out that protocol and then interpret, you know, interpret the data and say to EPA, look, our product meets the safety standards of EPA. But again, it, it must be repeated that pesticides are not registered as safe. They're registered as having acceptable, according to the US EPA, acceptable rates of harm, causing acceptable rates of illness. And that then is where the controversy lies, given the fact that in many cases we have inadequate data, inadequate testing. We've had a history of fraudulent uh, testing and data. We have some endpoints that are not tested for. For instance, endocrine disruption is not evaluated yet by EPA fully, which is astounding given that there are a considerable number of endocrine disruptors on the market and they do cause a whole array or can cause a whole array of chronic and long-term effects. We don't test for synergistic effects, meaning the interplay or the interaction between chemicals, chemical mixtures that cause an elevated effect uh, associated with that mixture. We don't test for the combination of pharmaceuticals, drugs that we may be taking, and pesticides, and those chemicals can interact as well. And so we're really not, you know, and there are a number of U.S. General Accounting Office reports, Office of Inspector General reports that establish the inadequacy of the regulatory review process. We cover this in great detail on our website, beyondpesticides.org, but we also maintain a database called the Pesticide-Induced Diseases Database. So you can look up any of these endpoints, any of these diseases, and you can see the scientific literature on our website. Um, a lot of this is epidemiologic reviews or studies that look at patterns of disease and their relationship to pesticide exposure. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask if there's a way where you contract a disease or a respiratory illness or something like that, and if you can link it back to certain pesticides or, you know, your yes. exposure. Yes, and, you know, we decided when, you know, there's a lot of industry perspective being put out there that, oh, you can't really use these tests that EPA relies on because they're animal studies, laboratory animal studies, which there are, we don't test on humans. And we, as an organization that tracks the scientific literature, we were seeing all kinds of studies that do trace disease outcomes back to use patterns or exposure patterns of toxic chemicals and pesticides. And it's just phenomenal. We have hundreds and hundreds of studies 
now that are specifically linked in the scientific literature. This is independent peer-reviewed studies that look at disease outcomes and trace it back to exposure patterns through these epidemiologic studies that are that are done. That's an important body of science that EPA actually does not evaluate and look at in their registration process, in the process they use to allow pesticides on the market or allow pesticides to remain on the market. They, they rely solely on the industry-provided data on laboratory animal testing. EPA did just announce the other day that they will be publishing reports of adverse effects. Most of the data that comes in on this comes from the chemical manufacturers. And the rigor with which this data is collected is extremely questionable. And so, you know, EPA now is disclosing hundreds, if not thousands of cases uh, that have been reported to manufacturers. The data was always available. It just had to be requested through the Freedom of Information Act. So now the agency is publishing this stuff, but it really is the tip of the iceberg because, as I say, the manufacturers have a fair amount of discretion as to what gets reported, what it deems is unreasonable. There's also really not good follow-up. Uh, the industry likes to say that pesticide problems, either poisoning, contamination, are caused by misuse of the product. That is a failure to comply with the label instructions. And our experience talking to people, tracking the exposures, is that that's not the case, that many people are being exposed, you know, to chemicals that are being legally used. They're being used in accordance with the label, and people are suffering adverse impacts associated with that. Thanks so much to Jay for speaking with me. Anything we talked about and to contact with Jay will be in the show notes below. And tune in in two weeks for part two. Thanks, everyone.